Last week, we read from Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. And part of that passage went like this. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I made them. Judgment was coming. Judgment would be fast and furious. Judgment would be universal, and it would be, it would be justified. For the last 1,600 years, humanity had lived under a type of judgment. You remember after Adam and Eve... That fateful decision in in paradise, nothing was the same after that. Life was hard. Having children was painful. Conjuring up food from the ground was a struggle. And suffering was just about everywhere that you looked. And death, well, death was inevitable. In some ways, they experienced progress. God-given creativity and ingenuity and strength and power to act. It led, led to achievements in art, in agriculture, led to achievements in technology. But as we've pointed out several times over the last few weeks, true life, liberty, and happiness, they were always out of reach. Even so, what is that old saying? That old saying, life goes on. Remember that that character in that old movie, Jurassic Park? What did he say? Life uh, finds a way. We'd like to believe that we are in control. We'd like to believe that we hold the strings of our own destiny. That that careful planning that we do is going to pay off. That, That we've studied hard enough. That we've made healthy choices. That we've gotten in enough steps, right? That we have gotten our babies on the right sleep schedule or been kind enough to our friends or bought enough insurance or raised our children up well. How about caught up on those emails or, or finally gotten a grip on those emotions that just seem to wreak havoc on our lives? But even if everything falls apart, If the tide turns against us and is battering us, is is bruising, is is crashing and crushing, we still want to believe that there's something that we possess that can never be taken away. Is it our pride? Is it our dignity? Is it command of our souls? William Ernest Henley He penned these words, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. 
It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And just like Henley, we we like to think that if the tables turn against us, even when our luck is down, even in the face of opposition and sometimes accusation, that we'll remain steadfast and unmoved because ultimately we're in control. But any sense of control that we seem to have is just an illusion, just an illusion What do you find confidence in? Where is your confidence? What ground have you chosen to stand on? What are the structures that you have built up that you look at and say, this, this will hold. This is going to get me through the storms that may come in life. Because of this, I am going to rise above it. I am the captain of my soul. As loud as we might shout those words, though, tightly we grip to them, no matter how many times we preach them to ourselves, at one point or another, we'll discover that they're just wishful thinking. They're happy thoughts. They're like like pipe dreams. We never have been and never will be in control. For the masses of people on the planet during Genesis chapter 6, that was definitely the case. They were busy doing all sorts of things that human beings do. We pointed that out last week. They're living their lives. They were having kids. They were building cities. They're trying to have it all. And yet unbeknownst to them, or perhaps unacknowledged by them, someone else was ultimately calling the shots. Someone else was in control. He's the one who sees and evaluates, who decides, who gives the verdict, and even carries out the sentence. You know, the flood, it tells us something about ourselves. It tells us something about ourselves. It tells us that as strong and as smart and as creative and industrious as we are, we're not in control. We don't have the ability to save ourselves from God's judgment. The flood narrative, it also tells us something about who God is. It tells us he's holy. It tells us that he will not, actually that he cannot put up with human disobedience forever. At least, not forever, right? He's patient. He's slow to anger. And yet, he will bring justice It's fundamental to his nature. He's holy. We talked about that before. Because God has the power to act, and because he has the right to act, because he's the only one who is righteous, that is the only one who is clean enough to act, and because it would be unjust for him not to act, well, he has to act. And that's exactly what we see him do in chapter 7 here. But God's also loving, right? He's loving. It says the Lord is abounding in steadfast love. We read that in Exodus 34, 6. 
We read that in Numbers 14, 18. We read that in Nehemiah 9, 17, in Psalm 86, 5, verse 15, 103, 8, 145, 8, Joel 2, 13, and Jonah 4, 2. God is abounding in steadfast love. And while we see the judgment of God in this passage here today, we also see a tremendous outpouring of God's love as well. Though the floodwaters were coming, he would make a way for some, a few, a small handful to be rescued, to be brought through, to rise above. And my question this morning is this. Why? Why Noah? What was it about him that, that made him stand out from the thousands of people, perhaps millions of people? Some people believe that there were, it's very likely there could have been billions of people on the planet by this time in history. What was it about Noah that set him apart, that made him rescue material in the eyes of God? Verse 8 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Well, why? Well, the answer is in verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah was a righteous man. Out of all the people alive on the planet, there's one man and his family that are considered righteous. Now we have to be careful here because how we define the term righteous and how righteousness is attained, that makes a tremendous difference. A tremendous difference. Everything hangs on that. It's the thing that determines whether or not you're going to sink or you're going to swim. It, it, whether you're going to rise above the deluge or just be overwhelmed by it. But before we get into that, we, we need to take a few moments to just run through the passage, get a flavor of the passage. We don't have time to read through Genesis 6, verse 9, all the way to 8.22 this morning. But let me just give you an overview this morning of what's in there. In chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, we see the state of the world. It's not good. And there we also see God's declaration to put an end to it. It says in verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So violence permeates the earth. We notice that that seemed to be the direction things were going back in chapter 4. You remember? We talked about Lamech. We talked about how he was bragging to both of his wives. He was saying, you know, a young man, he came and struck me and I got even with him. I took him down. I killed him. No one messes with Lamech. He's a violent man. And by this time in history, that's the mentality that spread throughout the entire world. Violence was the name of the game. I imagine it was violence to protect yourself, violence to defend your honor, violence to get ahead in life, violence to get what you wanted out of life, violence to get a laugh, 
Violence for the sake of entertainment. Violence even for the sake of establishing peace. It's the only way we're going to get it. We got to shut these other people down. Violence was the name of the game. When people decided to strike out on their own apart from God, and everyone decides that living for self is the greatest goal in life, well, violence is just the natural go-to solution. And that's the way it was in my family growing up. No one in my family needed to learn that violence is the answer to getting your way or to getting even when someone has offended you. In my early years, it was just me and my, my brothers. Before lunch one day, I got very industrious and I, I pulled together my constructs set that's kind of like the cross between Legos and an erector set. I don't think they sell them anymore. But I pulled all of them out into my, onto my bedroom floor and I built a four and a half foot long aircraft carrier. It was beautiful. It had, it had an elevator, a working elevator. It had jets on top. It had the control tower. This thing was the real deal. It was a work of art. But on returning from what was probably a lunch of a delightful peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I crossed the threshold into my room and discovered that one of my brothers was now using the flight deck as a trampoline. And constructs were bouncing off, flying out. It was like a fireworks show going on. And he's just laughing it up. And I knew in that moment that the only appropriate response that a 12-year-old boy could give was violent rage. I thought it was a boy thing, too. I thought it was just a boy thing. I grew up in a family of mostly boys, and so, you know, we, that's how we dealt with situations. But since I've had two girls... Now I realize that same thirst for blood, it's in them. It's inside of them. You know, these days, as advanced as our society has become, violence, it still permeates. It's on foreign soil, and it's right here at home. It's on the streets, and it's also up on our screens, sometimes in the palm of our hands. It's even inside of those who you think wouldn't hurt a fly. You look at them and they're just like, oh, they're just the sweetest person ever. And yet deep down inside our souls, each of our souls still beat or can beat the drums of war, right? The embers that, that glow there, they're just waiting to be fanned into flame. Just push the right buttons. We like to look at those characters like, uh, like Darth Vader or Adolf Hitler or those gruesome brain-starved zombies or the psychopaths. And we like to point our fingers and say, those are the real bad guys out there. That, that, those people we saw in the Avengers movies, that's the bad guy out there. Those are the real despicable people. But the reality is, is that the bad guy lurks within our hearts, each and every one of us. He's right here. It's the guy that wants to defend his rights, build up his kingdom, follow his dream. It's the guy who will rise up in rage at anyone who stands in his way. Genesis 6.12 says, God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That's the same that's true of us today. Romans 3.10 None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. 
Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. It, 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 it comes in the form of our words. It says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. That's pretty descriptive, isn't it? Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And just as God declared judgment on these people who were living in Noah's day, God has declared judgment on us today. The judgment is this. The wages of sin is death. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That, my friends, is not good news. This is the, the, the kind of verse that we want to take and we want to put aside. We want to lock up in that box under lock and key. Let's throw away the key. We don't want to recognize this. We don't want to deal with this. Let's, can't we just go on living our lives just like everyone else? But we're all guilty. Just as the people in Noah's day. And they didn't want to deal with it either. They didn't want to recognize it either. Let's just put that to the side. Let's just go on living our lives. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 37. For as we're in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. It would, he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. Are you ready? Are you ready? Being righteous was the thing that made all the difference. The difference between destruction and deliverance. Will you be found to be righteous on the day when the end comes? When Jesus returns, when you stand before the judgment seat, what is the verdict going to be? Will you be one of the ones like Noah whom God spares? Let's keep going. Genesis 6, 11 through 13, God resolves to bring judgment. In verse 14, verses 14 to 22, Noah follows God's instructions. So God gives Noah some rather specific instructions here. He says, make this ark. Make it out of gopher wood. We're not exactly sure what type of wood that was. It was probably very resilient, very sturdy. He says, give it rooms. Seal it, seal it both on the outside and the inside with a type of waterproof covering, some, something called pitch. 
Make it 300 cubits in length. That's about 510 feet. He tells how wide it should be, how tall it should be, how many floors it should have, where the door should be. He gave us instructions for what animals to bring on board and the food that is going to be needed to keep everyone alive. And in all of this, notice that God is the one who's doing the initiating here. He's the one who's starting it all off. Noah's just the one who obediently responds. God is the one who speaks in these chapters here. Noah, he just does. Verse 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will will establish my covenant with you. We don't see any sign of Noah being that lone weatherman, right? That brilliant um, environmental scientist who discovers that something amiss is on the horizon. And he says, well, we got to do this. We got to, you know, what we're going to have to do. The only way we're going to survive this thing that's coming, we got to build an ark and, and make for a great movie. But that's not the way it works here. We don't see him coming up with any type of plan to be saved from the coming storm or begging God even for mercy. We don't see Noah saying, Lord, this is coming. Please save us. Will you spare us? No, we don't see that. We simply see God saying, I'm bringing judgment and I'm going to save you through it. That's what we see. He's the one who's reaching out to Noah with the big news. He's the one giving the details of how to survive. He's the one who's making the promise to protect and preserve these few people. All of this is God's doing. He's the one in command. He's the only one who's calling the shots. On the verge of impending doom, God's grace makes a way for this righteous man and his family to rise above it. What does Noah do? Where he said he doesn't speak. He simply does what God commanded. Genesis 6.22. Then we look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. A command is given to enter the ark. It says this in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Again, what's the emphasis on? It's on Noah's righteousness. One week before the rain would arrive, God told everyone, get in the ark, it's time. Noah, at the age of 600 years old, he did all that the Lord commanded him. That's verse 5. Then look at verse 10. The flood begins. The flood comes. The fountains of the, of the deep, they burst forth. The windows of the heavens, they're opened. I mean, this must have been a, a fantastic and yet horrific and terrifying event. I can't imagine the sight. I can't imagine the cacophony of sound. It must have been deafening. I, I can't imagine the look of horror on the faces of those everywhere who realized this looks like the end. I don't think we're going to survive this. 40 days, 40 nights of torrential downpour, the ferocious judgment of the Creator, literally raining down on every living thing. 
Then we move into verse 17. It tells us that the flood persisted for 150 days, covering all the mountains of the earth. Nothing survives. Verse 21 says, And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. What God said would come, it came. But then we have verse 1 of chapter 8. This is of paramount significance. God remembers Noah. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. This is the center of the flood account. This is the eye of the storm in the midst of which God remembers Noah. And it's not that in the midst of all the raining down of judgment, all of a sudden, God, uh, his memory was jogged. And he's like, oh, right, those people in the ark, I need to take care of them. I guess I should help them out. No, God remembering Noah, it tells us that God keeps his promises. So important. He said he was going to bring them through the waters. He said he was going to protect them. And that's exactly what he did. He's faithful. He's a promise keeper. Time and time and time again, the Bible tells us that God is a God who is faithful. It says that in Hebrews 10.23. Let's hold fast to that confession. The confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. It says that in Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? He's God. He keeps his promises. What he says he will do. The writer of Lamentations 3, 22 says this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your what? Your faithfulness, O Lord. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Where is your hope? Where is your hope? What are you depending on? How do you expect to rise above the coming storm? Is it because you're the captain of your soul? You're stronger than most? Or is it because the Lord is the one in whom your soul hopes? Here's what the rest of the flood account looks like. Now, you probably won't be able to read this because it's rather small, but I wanted you to see that there is almost a mirror-like reflection in how this account is structured. And it all hinges on that verse 1 of chapter 8. God remembered Noah. After we're told that, everything begins to turn around. 
It's the exact reversal of what has happened thus far. So the, the flood, it prevailed for 150 days, but after another 150 days, the waters recede. The flood began in chapter 7, verse 10, but then the earth dries in chapter 8, verses 6 through 14. God commanded Noah and his family to enter the ark in 7, 1 through 9, but in 8, 15 through 19, he tells them it's time to get out. Noah builds the ark in obedience to God in Genesis 6, 14 to 22. Then in 8, 20, he builds an altar to God in praise for his deliverance. In 6, 11 through 13, God resolves to destroy. But in 8, 21 through 22, God promises to never again destroy in the same way. This is not a tale of human triumph, of overcoming the odds, overcoming incredible adversity. It's not a story about mustering up enough courage, about outsmarting, outwitting the enemy, about dodging the blows or narrowly escaping what looked like certain death. No, it's not that. In fact, the captains of their souls, the ones who thought that they were in control, the ones who were trying desperately to make their lives better, remember what we talked about last week, they were the ones who were lost. Their lifeless bodies drifted slowly into the depths, never again to breathe the breath of life again. This is the story of a family of eight surviving the storm. When all others perished, they, because of a a, a tremendous outpouring of God's grace on their lives, they survive. It's the account that puts on display, yes, the judgment of God, but it also, in a powerful way, puts on display His mercy as He chose to rescue Now, some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, but there's a reason that God was merciful here. You see, Noah was righteous. It was his righteousness that saved him. It's only because he he was some kind of moral superhero, or he was kind of this holier-than-thou, this this do-goody. It was only because of that that God chose to save him. He, He kind of earned it. He kind of deserved it. Uh, But remember, everything hinges on what righteousness means and how righteousness is attained. You see, though it says that Noah was righteous, even though it says that he was blameless in his generation, that doesn't mean Noah was perfect. It can't mean Noah was perfect. It doesn't mean that out of all the people on the planet, that he alone had the strength, the inner strength, and sheer force of will to live exactly the way God wanted him and designed him to act. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that he was able to do what no one else was able to do. He was able to cross every holy T, Dot every heavenly eye and somehow earned the title of righteous one. It doesn't mean that. You see, Noah's righteousness, it didn't come from himself. It wasn't that Noah had this pure heart from birth and everyone else had hearts of darkness. No, he was sinful. 
He was imperfect, just like everyone else. The difference here is that Noah, like a man that we're going to read about in several chapters from, from this one today, like Abram, he had faith in God. It says in Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it. God counted it to him as righteousness. That's the way it was with Noah. He believed God. He had faith in God. Hebrews eleven six says this, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in irreverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, true righteousness, that is the state of being a guilty sinner who is now considered not guilty by God, That isn't found. You don't attain that by being perfect on your own. You can't attain it. Instead, it's about humbly recognizing that I am a sinful person. I'm not good enough. It's about coming before the Lord and saying, God, I I deserve your judgment. I'm a sinner. And at the same time, trusting, God, I deserve your judgment, but I know, God, that you are a merciful God. And so I'm trusting in your mercy. I'm not trusting in my goodness. I'm trusting in your mercy. And that is where forgiveness is going to come from. Your grace abounds. And you alone can save. It's about admitting that my way is death and his way is life. Righteousness, it only comes through faith. That's what the Bible tells us over and over again. Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 3.21-22, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. See, no one becomes righteous by following that list of rules because no one can follow the rules perfectly. In fact, even if you decide, I'm going to start following the rules now, well, it doesn't really matter because you've already broken them in your past. Righteousness is only found through faith. It's us recognizing we're imperfect, we're sinful, looking to him as our only source of hope, like Raylene shared earlier. That's the way it worked for Noah, that's the way it works for us. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, all the good things that he had done, all the treasures that he had built up, all the certificates that would point to his godly character, how moral, how wise, how learned he was, all of those things, he says, were just worthless. They weren't really good at all. Instead, he had to trust in the righteousness of Jesus. He writes in Philippians 3, 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, Paul was just as evil and just as violence-filled as anyone in his day. In fact, you look at God's word and you see that Paul was a violent man. His life was imperfect, but Jesus' life 
was perfect. Paul deserved to face the full fury of God's judgment, just like everybody else. But Jesus took that judgment upon himself when he went to the cross and died in Paul's place. All Paul had to do was give up being the captain of his soul. Give up, I can't do this. Give up trusting in his own accomplishments. Give up trying to save himself. Give up and put his faith in the gracious God who sent Jesus Christ to be the ark that would bring him through God's judgment. That would bring him through the storm. And the same is true for you and me. That's why Paul brought us so many months ago to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, where he says, it is by grace, not by your grace, it's not by you being a gracious person, it's by God's grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Who do you find your confidence in? What ground have you chosen to stand on? How do you plan to rise above the judgment of God that is coming? If you've not placed your trust in Jesus, you need to do that. I urge you to do it this morning. Nothing else is going to save you from the storm that's coming. Being a righteous person, the kind of person that will rise above is all about trusting in God's goodness, not your own. You've got to confess that you're a sinner. You've got to confess, I, I, I should be one of those that, that drowned. I should be one who is judged, who is condemned. What Jesus did on the cross, yeah, that should have been me. But it wasn't me. He did it. And when he did it, he was thinking of me. This was for me. This this was God's mercy. In the midst of universal judgment, this was God saying, I am building an ark for you, and it looks like Jesus. It'll bring you through the storm. You need to say, Jesus, I trust you. You need to say, Jesus, thank you for taking my place. God, thank you for your incredible mercy, your incredible grace. It's totally undeserved, and yet it's all mine because of you. I trust you. I have faith in you. That's what it's all about. Now, a lot of you might be thinking, okay, well, that's all well and good, but you know what? I did that a long time ago, and I'm trusting in Jesus now, Jared, so, you know, this message really is just It's not for me. But I don't think that's the case. How does your faith in Christ impact the way that you live right now? Notice that Noah's faith impacted the way that he lived, didn't it? It completely impacted it. His faith led him to live a blameless life. When everyone else was giving in to burning passion, he said, no, 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 no. God is good. We're sinful. I want to I do everything I can to live the way God wants me to live. It says he lived a blameless life. It wasn't a perfect life, but it was very, very different from everyone else's. 
His faith led him to use his time, his talents, his treasure, his resources in obedience to God, didn't it? Because he trusted God, this life on this earth, it wasn't about building up the kingdom of Noah. It wasn't about building up the bank accounts of Noah, about building the cities, about building his, his household that everyone would drive by and just go, whoa, look at the creativity there. That stands out amongst all the other houses on the blocks. It wasn't about that. Everything was for God's kingdom. The giving it all. God says you need to build this ark. How long is this ark going to take to build? It's going to take 100 years or so. (laughs) And he says, yes, I'll do that. No, we don't even see him saying yes. It just says he did it. He just obeys. His faith led him to stand up for what was right. We read that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. In his dark day, when everyone else was doing their own thing, he stood for what was right. And he says, guys... This is not right. God does not approve. You need to be living like this, not like this. No matter how unpopular that message was in that day, and based on what we read last week, that message must have been extremely unpopular. He probably was a social outcast for preaching that message, but it was by faith that he did it. How does your faith impact the way that you're living right now? Are you living a blameless life? A life that says no to ungodliness and worldly lusts and says yes to God? Are you using your time, your talents, your treasure, your resources for God's kingdom? Or are you using them just to build your own? Are you speaking truth and standing up for what's right, even though it's incredibly unpopular in our day? But by faith you do. In short, are you living like heaven is your real home and God is actually the one who is in control, not you, and this life is not all there is? Are you living like that? Noah was righteous. It was by faith that Noah was considered righteous by God. By faith that led him to live that kind of life. By faith that led him to obey God's commands. Even when everyone else said, you are just a foolish old man. By faith he did it. By faith he spoke the words of God. He proclaimed truth, and by faith, his family and he stepped inside that boat. And by faith, they rose above the waters of judgment. Noah didn't save himself, not by a long shot. It was God who saved him. Because of his faith, he was counted righteousness. Here's the big idea this morning. It's simply this. The only way you and I will be found righteous and escape the coming judgment of God. Escape the storm is by faith in Jesus Christ because he is the ark of our salvation. That's what it's all about. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Is your whole life built on him? Our hope is built on nothing Less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray.